Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Bonjour et bienvenue à Government vs. the Robots. This week we're in France. You'll find out why in a moment, but we've spent many episodes talking about how government should or could be better at using technology. That's why this episode is recording live at the GovTech Summit in Paris. Because of that, you might hear the odd banging door or siren in the background, but rest assured we've done our best to keep the quality as high as you're used to. We're going to be getting perspectives from city mayors, entrepreneurs in bureaucracies, leading startups and global foundations about how to get the most from technology for as many people as possible around the world. First, though, I sat down with Hannah Johnson, the Chief Operating Officer of Public, the organisation behind the summit, to find out more about them. Hannah, can you first off introduce yourself? I'm Hannah Johnson. I'm the Chief Operating Officer of Public. And we're at the start of a special episode on the GovTech Summit. So can you tell me first off what Public is and how does it relate to the GovTech Summit? So Public is what we call an ecosystem business. Um, we're in the business of creating an ecosystem of startups to help transform public services. We think that the innovation and dynamism of the startup community could really bring to bear on making public services better. And you're based in London, across Europe, or all over the world? We started in London, but we've announced today at the GovTech Summit that we'll be opening a, an office in Paris, uh, starting our accelerator, GovStart, in France at the beginning of next year, and we have ambitions beyond that. So we, we consider ourselves a European business. And GovStart's something that's already begun in the UK, is that right? It is. GovStart started two years ago. Uh, we've had now 22 companies come through the programme. Um, we've had some fantastic success with companies like Adzuna winning contracts with DWP, um, Redsift winning contracts with number 10 Downing Street. We've got a fantastic cadre of brilliant startups all across the board of GovTech. One of those startups can be found on episode two of Government versus the Robots, which was Mahi Ben, who runs Sira in an episode called A Doctor on Your Wrist, looking at digital healthcare and the potential around that. So um, can you set out a little bit of what you are trying to do with the GovTech Summit? Because we're about to hear from a range of speakers, so it'd be good to know what's the idea that lies behind that. I mean, I said that public is an ecosystem business. Part of building that ecosystem is bringing together the startups, the investors, the government officials, all into one room to talk, debate, discuss, um, and really make those connections. Because, I mean, if we look at today, we've had 2,000 people walking through the door. It's four o'clock in the afternoon right now, and there's still nearly 1,000 people in, in the room listening to the discussion. Um, 800 people who signed up with startups. So there clearly is a thriving ecosystem. But one of the problems we find is that those startups can't connect into government. You can't connect to the right people to have the right discussions so that they know what you're doing and can see the potential of what's already out there. So 
that's really what the summit's about today, bringing everybody together, putting them in the same room, letting them have the debates together and, and seeing what can come of it. And you've worked in 10 Downing Street. Was it part of your experience there that you knew that there were good ideas out there that were struggling to kind of make their way to the top of government and big decision makers and perhaps big budgets? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I did with Daniel when we worked together in Number 10 was work on the digital strategy. And I think he and I both shared a frustration with the level of vision that you could see within the departments that you're working with. It's an old institution, the civil service, and it has some fantastic benefits, some real expertise in it. But one of its strengths is not always um, innovating and looking to new technologies. Um, That's something we want to change. That's part of what the summit is about today. We've made some fantastic connections and, and some good discussions, not just in the UK, but in, in France, in Germany, in Italy. So yeah, my experience and Daniel's brought us to kind of this place. And is this the first GovTech summit of many? Of course. This is certainly not the last. Um, I don't think when we conceived of this many months ago, we could have imagined um, how brilliant it would be, how many people would come uh, and engage in this. This will certainly not be the last GovTech summit you see. Great. Well, I know it's been a very busy day for you, Hannah. So thanks very much for talking to me. Thank you. First up, we're going to be hearing from Jan Vapavri. Jan is the mayor of Helsinki, and one of the first things he did in his role was encourage staff across the city to be trained in the potential uses of artificial intelligence. I asked him to tell me why people involved in GovTech should be keeping a close eye on the Finnish city. Jan Vapavri, the mayor of, of Helsinki, which is the capital of Finland. And Jan, when did you realise that GovTech was an interesting conversation to be part of? You know that I'm coming from Finland, which is the promised country of engineers, a very technology-driven country, the home country of, of Nokia. So I think that I, I realized that several years before I became a mayor, that uh, I do believe that digitalization and the, the technological revolution will change the world more profoundly and, and more rapidly than anything else so far. And that no one can like hide from that and then if you want to be a forerunner as we have always wanted to be I think you just need to understand that everything which can be digitalized will be digitalized and more or less everything can be. And is there anything that's happened since you became mayor that's reinforced your belief in the potential of technology to improve public services? Certainly, yes. Uh, I remember very well, um, just when I, I, after I took office, I had a long discussion with the chairman of Nokia, and I told him that, like, on a theoretical level, I understand what AI is, but I do not really have a clear picture of what it means in practice. And he told me that, uh, don't bother, it's not your job to understand that, but it's your job to guarantee that your organization does. And actually, what we did was we started a, a training and education program for all management level staff in the whole city to train them in AI and and in other new technologies. And uh, when I see more and more people uh, getting like more convinced of of where where we are and where we go and what's going on in the world, I think that gives gives us a, a lot of power and got a lot of hope. And is there anything happening in Helsinki at the moment that people who watch GovTech and watch the use of technology for public good should be keeping an eye out for? Certainly. I mean, uh, I'm sure that we are among the forerunners. Um, but I mean, for, I can't say that it would be like business as usual for us, but close to that. We are so used to use technology and everything we do. So, uh, I mean, we, we haven't seen any big revolution just during the last week or last year or something like that. Uh, but yes, we have certainly a, a huge amount of good examples 
just to name one or two, I think we have one of the most advanced 3D models of the whole city, uh, and that combined with our open data policy, we, we provide that information, that 3D model to, to anyone in order to, to, to innovate on, on, on that platform, and I'm really eager to see what, what we're going to see and what kind of in, innovations the other one is that we are building a totally new neighborhood uh, on a spot where you had a, a cargo port just some years ago. And we, we started with a, a demonstration model where we actually demonstrate and pilot more or less everything in that neighborhood from, from wastewater treatment to, to smart parking and from healthcare to social care. And we have been able to, to involve more than one third of all the inhabitants of, of that neighborhood. So I also see that people are really interested and, and, and want to be engaged and want to be involved. And, and we also see a, a, a great progress because of that. And I believe you've been a national politician and now you're a city politician and you're talking today about cities. Um, is it right to think that cities are probably easier to innovate in, that GovTech might take hold in cities quicker than it might do across whole countries? Yes, yes and yes. <laughs> we have some good examples from the state level in Finland as well. I, I think our taxation authorities have made a, a great job already some, some years ago. But otherwise, and in, in the big picture, I mean, of course, cities, they are much closer to the, to the people. Uh, they are handling, I mean, every day uh, things like uh, we are teaching kids each and every day. We are taking care of the, the elderly and the, and the sick each and every day. We are taking care of the streets each and every day. We are working on the grassroots level, of course, also a little bit on the policy and budget level, but, but compared to the nation states, it, it's a totally different story. Uh, in our work, we also see like tangible results of what we are doing each and every day. And even, I mean, also from the point of, of view of empowering other players in, in the community, uh, it's, it's much easier and more natural for, for a ACD to do that. I believe that in a world which is getting more and more complex, we just need to like find simple answers to complex issues, and then those are solutions you, you most probably find on the city level. And you're broadly an optimist about the potential of technology. I am an optimist concerning everything. It's a matter of attitude. I mean, of course, you should not be naive. Technology itself is not good or bad. It, it depends on how, how you use it. But what I really believe in uh, coming from Finland and Helsinki is that a smart city is based on, on smart people. And if you have smart people and if you really remember to concentrate on education, then you increase your probability to make technology be a beneficial, not a detrimental tool. And just lastly, what might a visitor to Helsinki who's paying attention to civic technology and public services, which I appreciate not all tourists will do, um, in five years' time perhaps see that technology has changed the city? No one knows how the world will uh, look uh, from five years from now. I mean, even one year or two years from now is is very far away. But uh, I think that in, in today's world where... We see several revolutions at the same time concerning technology, concerning democracy, concerning media, concerning more or less everything. A city and a country which is based on trust and where you have a a high level of education, you have the best chance 
to, to make a, a good use of, of technology. And, and that's why I think that uh, Helsinki and, and certainly also other Nordic cities, some Canadian cities, will be among the, the winners in, in this game. Jan, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. Robin Scott was the moderator of one of the opening panels here at the GovTech Summit, looking at the state of GovTech across Europe. I sat down with her in a particularly echoey part of Paris Town Hall to find out more about her work. My name is Robin Scott. I'm co-founder and CEO of Apolitical. And you've been chairing a panel this morning at the GovTech Summit on the state of GovTech across Europe. What did you learn about the state of GovTech across Europe? Well, one of the most striking aspects is the delta between where we are now and where we could be in terms of potential. We're really at the foothills of an emerging industry. I did some audience polling and asked from the startups and SMEs in the room how many of those uh, had contracts with government and how many of those had contracts with government in more than one country. And it was striking how almost all of the hands went down. But at the same time, I asked the audience, and it's a pretty large audience, who had who'd heard of the term GovTech five years ago, and almost no hands went up. And equally, almost no one had been to a conference specifically focused on GovTech. So it's very, very early days, and uh, we're only just getting started. And you're the CEO and founder of Apolitical. Can you explain to us what Apolitical does? Um, absolutely. And co-founder. I have another um, I have a wonderful co-founder who's also a woman, um, which I'm very proud of because it's not an industry where there are a lot of, of women. Um, Apolitical is a digital platform which is aiming to make it as easy for public servants and policymakers to find the best policy solution as it is to book a hotel room for their holiday. We think it's crazy that it's so easy to do such trivial things and yet such consequences significant things are so hard to deal with. Huge um, taxpayer funds implications, huge implications in terms of our lives. And our mission at Apolitical is by helping these solutions spread faster um, to accelerate the transformation of government so it can not only handle the problems of today but get ready to handle the even more complex problems we'll face tomorrow. And this strikes me as something which may be a government procurement problem in that a lot of government agencies have to procure at a large scale and obviously a lot of startups are very small. Is it the case that there are dozens of startups out there trying to work with government and government's failing, or is, is are the startups kind of failing to get to grips with what they need to do to attract government? I mean, I think, as always, uh, more can be done on, on both sides. I think there are, like, structural barriers that government needs to act on first in order to enable startups to work more closely. And we, we discussed some of those on the panel and at an earlier breakfast today. But um, just for example, one is to make budgets explicitly available for innovation where it is known that there's going to be a degree of failure. And uh, an example was given by a startup founder speaking this morning of, of a department which is saying, all right, 40% of this allocated budget may fail and that's okay and because of the incentives in government being so strongly weighted against taking risks even smart risks and the penalties for failure being so high one needs explicit setups like that around innovation equally I think sometimes startups are a bit arrogant or indeed all um, private sector companies can be arrogant with government and not explain what they're offering in a way that really speaks to the very complex responsibilities and multiple stakeholders and constraints that public servants are working under. Um, I've lost count of the number of people from the private sector I've spoken to who've gone into government, kind of all guns blazing about how they're going to educate and change and bring all these great private sector practices and have been really humbled by how difficult it is. 
So I think there is a, a sort of mutual understanding question that we can improve upon. Another big problem being so early in the industry is they just aren't great precedents. So once we've had a few standout startups come in and become giant successful celebrated companies off the back of early projects with governments and governments investing in them, I think it will get that much easier. But the narrative right now isn't there. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And in what areas do you think the chances are that those kind of startups that go big and become successful, where do you think the most optimistic or promising field of GovTech is right now? Gosh, I think I think there's so many, but um, I'd say it's around where they're most urgent crises, where people in government kind of have their necks and careers on the line if they don't solve massive crushing problems. So it's hard to pick a, a winning sector now, but, but just to dwell on one, which I think is really interesting, is healthcare and social care. You know, we've got in wealthy countries, which also have budgets to work with GovTech startups more often, we have, you know, crushing burden of aging populations. We also have a very interesting market for startups because you can potentially create an app, which is low barrier to entry, which helps, you know, dramatically improve someone's quality of life because maybe it connects them to carers or helps them access government services more easily. So I think that combination of an easy technology to create and an area where there's a lot of urgency makes for interesting candidates. Um, I, I just add one other, I think the whole area of citizen engagement is really interesting for startups, partly because it's by definition so public. So if you can get something working, you have that visibility and the ability to tell a story. And you've set out some of the things that private sector actors could do differently and perhaps some of the things that government could do differently. If I was to give you a magic wand and kind of enable you to ensure that the private sector adopted one different behaviour in their approach to government and perhaps that government adopted one different behaviour in its approach to the private sector, what might they be? I think they're actually related behaviours. It would be, and this maybe sounds unexciting, but I think it could have a profound difference, to get to know each other better and to know 
from the government perspective what the private sector is actually offering. One of the huge problems with government procurement and tendering is often these tenders are written without knowledge of what's actually available on the market. So startups are out there with no connections to government saying, hey, I've got this cool thing, shouting into the void, and government isn't even asking the questions it needs to be asking because they don't know the state of the art of technology. But the problem is we've got a legacy system where the connections between government tend to be with the very large companies. So finding ways of connecting government to more startups. And I think the systemic change underpinning that, there are lots of marketplaces and and forums that can accelerate that. But the big systemic change that needs to happen is we need more movement between the two sectors. So startup founders going into government, government working in startups, only that will knit the, the fabric together. And there have been some interesting initiatives in the Obama administration. Some really cool things were done around, for example, 18F, bringing technologists into government. But I think we need a lot more of those. And in a practical sense, apolitical, is, a, is it something that people log into and kind of browse for great ideas? Is it something that brings people together and convenes conversations? Yeah, so when we talk about helping public servants find policy solutions, we look across the spectrum of a solution, which we consider as starting with ideas and inspiration. So what's happening in a particular domain? If I'm dealing with a refugee crisis I've never dealt with before, what are some of the ideas that people elsewhere are using to solve this? So that's part one, that's ideas. And a lot of that content is peer-to-peer driven. So we, we are giving public servants a platform to share what they've done because it's crazy, all this reinvention of the wheel happens in government. There's so much unnecessary duplication and there also isn't really a place for public servants to share with each other because we've historically had this idea that everything is local and ideas can't transfer across borders but they demonstrably can. So that phase one is ideas. We also have a network integrated with that so you can read about a cool thing happening read the evidence on it and then you can speak to the person behind it who's implemented it because often you know the devil is in the detail. The stuff that perhaps can't be put in writing is what you need to know like how do I make things happen? What were the skills needed to do something? And finally some thing that is not yet live but which we'll be launching is a way to connect with providers who can help you implement stuff and this comes back to the questions around um, startups we want to help democratize access to government for innovative smaller companies who have ways of solving these policy problems and we know that startups like to move super quickly and government progress is kind of glacial at the best of times but if we bring these two worlds together what do you think success might look like for the GovTech sector in maybe five, ten years' time. I mean, we, we had some of this conversation uh, on the, the panel this morning. I think it's about big systemic changes which embody this idea of government as a platform. That's where we need to get to. We need to have government doing the requisite steps to enable the innovative startup sector to plug in, as it were. So just one example, I mean, digital identity is a great platform component that government has to obviously steward in some ways, but that can help startups a great deal. And we're seeing that in India. Examples like good data management that allows citizens more control over their data and allows the private sector to interact in a in an appropriate way. One of my favorite examples is something being trialed in New Zealand at the moment, which is to make all legislation machine readable. So the idea behind that is you break down laws into its building block. So who gets what, when, under what conditions. That's exciting, both because it will allow public servants to 
predict the effect of legislation, but it also makes it much easier for startups, for example, to plug in to government because instead of having expensive intermediaries and lawyers to follow legislation, you can follow it with an algorithm um, and adapt much more quickly. So the platform components of government need to be realised. Robin, thanks very much for talking to me. Just to check quickly, if people want to find out more about Apolitical, where do they go? To our website, which is apolitical.co. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Core Rees Nielsen is the leader of Denmark's Disruption Task Force. Their job is to try and encourage the private sector to come forward with ideas about how to make Danish public services better. You join us just after I asked him why Denmark should stand out in the GovTech world. Unions were saying that Denmark cannot afford to miss the next Uber. Uh, and then the next thing happened was that Denmark was the first country that actually made a regulation for Airbnb for automatic tax uh, registration. And I think it just showcased that, that we want to do stuff, we want to move. Uh, we, are not, we are not there yet. Uh, as any other government, any other nation, we, we need to better navigate there to see what we can do to, first of all, cater to, to the many small, medium-sized enterprises, but also to be a testing case to, to develop new kind of regulation that fits into this speediness and agileness of, of new technologies and digitization. Cool. Can you set out for me what a disruption task force does? The disruption task force is taking kind of the idea that technology is changing things and then we're sitting down with our good colleagues to say what can we do in that space, define concrete projects. Highlighting two projects would be try to, to um, better understand how a regulatory sandbox experiments is looking, what kind of technologies, is, what are the drivers, and what is the demand out there in the market. So it's not us as bureaucrats who are defining it, but it's being driven what the market wants. So getting to grasp this kind of regulatory sandbox is how you're doing, how you frame it, where to start, time span, etc. That's one project. And disruption is something that often causes unintended consequences. What is the right level of disruption for, for, for government at the moment? Uh, you should ask the politicians about that. I think disruption is a nice word until it catches up with you, right? Uh, I think the way we look at it is more kind of looking from a change perspective. We know things are changing. We don't know exactly what technologies are going to change us. Everybody's talking about AI or blockchain. Uh, we don't know really how, when and how they will take off, but I think it's important from a regulatory perspective that we are there, that we try to be more agile uh, to better understand because basically the regulatory process haven't, or the legislative process haven't changed much for the past 150 years, whereas technology is changing on a day-to-day basis. And that gap is getting wider, and this is, this is a bit worrisome, uh, and, uh, and we need to close that gap. The government should never be ahead of the technology curve, but we just cannot have this wide be even more, uh, it's have to widen up even more. Uh, so we need to figure out what kind of regulatory culture, what kind of instruments could fit into this kind of more uh, fast-moving uh, way of doing things and maybe not going for rock-solid re- regulation, maybe looking more into regulatory sandboxes, being more experimental. I think that's one of the things we are looking at. And of, of course, GovTech is, a, is another interesting case uh, where we are trying to f- find our own feet in Denmark. Is disruption especially hard to achieve in a bureaucracy? Well, you can argue that uh, bureaucracies by nature is kind of risk-averse. 
on the other hand, what I witnessed there with, with all my good colleagues in there, that everybody is really an open door when we talk about disruption, when we talk about innovation. So it, it's very important when you want to do disruption in a bureaucracy that you understand the organization, that you are close and you conceive them as colleagues. You don't believe in a revolution by tomorrow. And then, of course, you, you should not always take a no for an answer uh, in a bureaucracy. But it's very, very important to understand the organization. You want to disrupt change or innovate, whatever you call the beast. And what is a realistic set of uh, hopes for the next kind of five years in the GovTech sector, both in Denmark and perhaps across Europe? Well, if, if you take a more broader perspective, I think governments these days, they have a kind of a dual purpose. On one hand, they have to do the technology and digitization right in, this, in sense of data ethics, in terms of privacy, in terms of taxation, monopoly. But they also have a responsibility to harness the best of technology for citizens, for consumers, and for business. And I don't know where it will lead, but what we will do concretely within the ministry is to accelerate all the initiatives we have been doing in the, in the space of, of Denmark as a digital frontrunner. So what does it take as a private sector person to work well with government? They need to go for risk and they need to have a high patience, but then they also understand that this is where you get massive impact if we're doing it right together. Great. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. Perfect. Much of the conversation here at the GovTech Summit has focused on the opportunities available to cities like Paris in countries like France, but many of the issues being discussed have got ramifications far beyond Europe. I took the chance to talk to the CEO of the World Wide Web Foundation to talk about their work on the principles of a contract for the web. I'm Adrian Lovett. I'm the CEO of the World Wide Web Foundation. And what does the World Wide Web Foundation do? Well, we were established by Sir Tim Berners-Lee, the the guy who invented the the web, um, really to defend and to protect his vision of the web, which is firstly that it should be for everyone, and secondly that it should be a public good that one way or another benefits humanity, not, uh, not the opposite. And that's a mission that really takes us to doing what we, we hope is really good quality, robust research from our experience on the ground. It takes us into then taking that research into policy conversations with, uh, with policymakers in all parts of the world and increasingly into engaging with the public with compelling campaigns and communications that engage them with that vision. And we're at the GovTech Summit, which is specifically about the nexus between government and technology. Is that something that interests the Web Foundation? Very much so. I mean, we've always been clear that of the kind of uh, stakeholders that have a responsibility for defending that founding vision of the web, governments and companies are very close to the top of the list. Um, And they each, of course, have different roles to play. So we're really interested in seeing here at uh, at the summit uh, the state of the debate there and inserting our own thoughts, including around a a big idea we've got, which I'm sure we'll come on to, around an an idea of a contract for the web. Um, So, yes, it's good to, to have a lot of the key people in one place and we're looking forward to the conversations. And we're in Paris, which is the home of the OECD, and there's a kind of set of um, rich European country issues where governments are thinking about how they work with big tech firms. But uh, the web is, of course, worldwide, and I wonder whether there are areas where we're seeing um, technology and the use of the web affect politics in countries beyond Europe. Very much so. I mean, I think we at the Web Foundation put out a a report last week called The Case for the Web, um, which included some new findings uh, looking in part at the impact of these issues in developing countries. And one of the things we found in the countries we surveyed, about 60 low- and middle-income countries, was that more than half the people in those countries, which is a huge number of people, 
have no data protection framework of any any serious nature in their countries. So hundreds of millions of people are left uh, simply without anything like the kind of protection that now we have here in Europe under under GDPR and which increasingly is becoming a standard elsewhere. So I think there are two uh, universes in a way. There is the, the universe here that many of the people engaged in these conversations in Paris are, are part of, where we have the internet, we have the web, and we have some really important issues to figure out about how to make it better. But there's another universe where actually the web and the internet are simply not present or very, very underutilized. And the increasing challenge there is that people are missing out on some of the what will become very soon essential basic rights that can only be accessed by being connected. Elsewhere on this episode, we're talking about disruption, and we've spoken to the leader of Denmark's Disruption Task Force. It seems to me that disruption often has unintended consequences, and perhaps that's something that the Web Foundation's founder, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, might think about the web. I know you were in Lisbon last week at the Web Summit, um, talking about some of the things that might be done to improve the state of the use of and applications of the web. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. I mean, so Tim would would say and was saying in, in Lisbon last week that he, uh, in the 30 years uh, since he invented, almost 30 years since he invented the web, has been for many, many years, for much of that time, uh, optimistic and very hopeful that everything would turn out fine. And that one way or another, the thing that he had created and gave to the world for free would enable people to connect and to communicate and to create. And that could only be a good thing for humanity. Now, in many ways, it has been very good, as we know. But Tim himself has become, in just in the last two or three years, much more concerned, much more worried, and, and realizing that we can't just let things take their course naturally, because, as you say, there are unintended consequences, and we're seeing many of those now, whether it's in terms of content online, fake news and misinformation and so on, in terms of how our data is, is handled and controlled and, and processed and monetized, in terms of what governments are doing in different parts of the world to shut down parts of the internet and so on. So what we put forward last week was this idea that actually we need a a kind of a contract between governments, uh, companies, and all of us as citizens setting out what our responsibilities are in each of those groups and then holding each other accountable to those commitments. So last week we launched what is the first stage of that, which was some underlying principles for that contract. We've got now, I think, about 90 organizations, including the French government here, uh, including some big-name companies, Facebook and Google and Anchor Free and others, and some great civil society organizations like Access Now and uh, and many at a national level in different parts of the world, and more signing on all the time. So there seems to be a real sense of momentum, and we've got to the stage of principles. The next stage over the next six months is to drill down into those nine principles and debate deliberate and negotiate between those different parties to see if we can pull together a full contract which has concrete responsibilities for each of those groups and then enact that. And will that feature a question of prioritisation? I know all of the aspects of the contract for the web that have been shared at the moment don't have a kind of order of priority. Do you think you'll need to prioritise in terms of what we try and get countries around the world to agree to first? Well, I think that's something that might come out in the discussions that we've got that we've got ahead of us. And I think, truthfully, uh, you know, if, if we claimed to know exactly how this will turn out in six months' time, I think we'd be kidding ourselves because, uh, you know, this is tough and new stuff that we're dealing with, these challenges. And, uh, you know, the reason for having these conversations and for having this process is uh, in order to see if we can generate together some, some insights and some, some wisdom uh, that we can then try to capture. But I think 
think in terms of priorities, I think what we will certainly try to hold to is that there is an equally important focus between, on the one hand, fixing the web that we have, and there are plenty of things that need to be done for that, and on the other hand, ensuring that actually we go beyond what we're calling a 50-50 moment where just half the world is online. We need to double down and challenge governments and companies and all of us to think about how to make sure the whole world can be connected to the web that we want. And for people who figure that this is an interesting conversation or maybe an important conversation that they want to be part of, how, how can they follow the work of the foundation over the next six months as this conversation comes together? Well, we would love to have everyone on board and they can go online to webfoundation.org, get involved in not only understanding uh, the principles in the contract and signing up to those and individuals can do that or organisations, private and public sector, civil society, but also to get involved in the campaign that's underpinning uh, that contract. At, at the Web Foundation, we think it's really important, not only that we, uh, that we talk with policymakers uh, in the public and the private sector, but that actually behind that there is a really engaged conversation in the wider public with web users, which of course almost all of us are, and that we're all taking an interest, that we're taking responsibility for making our part of the web and our contribution to the web consistent with that founding vision. So people can get involved, they can sign up online, and, uh, and we'll, we'll keep people in touch with how the negotiations are going around that contract, but also we'll be asking people to, to tell their stories of what the web means to them and uh, connect with their friends and family and their co-workers and so on to, to spread the word. And we haven't done too much talking on government versus the robots about campaigns generally, and you're a very experienced, successful campaigner. Is it a, a foregone conclusion that in order to have the internet we want, we will have to campaign for it? I think it is, yes. And I, I don't say that because you always have to do that. I mean, I, I will take Route 1 wherever I can. And if Route 1 means you can just talk to policymakers and present compelling arguments and, and get things done, then that's what we do. But more often than not, and I think certainly in this case, we're not going to get success in those direct conversations unless we've got an activated, active, interested, engaged public um, who are uh, ready to encourage and, and cheer those, uh, those, whether they're governments, companies or whatever, who are doing the right thing and ready to call out those who are not. And that context, in my experience, has always been necessary to get the big changes done. It isn't always needed on the, on the smaller stuff, but if you want to sort of move something big and this feels like a big one, then you need every lever that you can pull available to you. Adrian, thank you very much. That's all from the GovTech Summit here in Paris. We'll be back next time picking up conversations about how technology will influence politics in the future. As ever, if you've enjoyed the episode, please do subscribe, maybe even drop your friends an email about it, and you can follow us on Twitter at G-O-V-T underscore V-S Robots. My thanks, as ever, to Sky Redman for her help with the editing and production. And until next time, au revoir. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.